This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to the Irish Examiner podcast series on the Civil War. This year, of course, 2022 is the centenary of the Civil War, which brought to an end a turbulent near decade of conflict, which started with Easter 1916 and culminated in the birth of the state and the dispute over the Anglo-Irish Treaty signed in December 1921. In this series, we're examining various aspects of the Civil War, which was characterised as pitting brother against brother and sister against sister also, and which unfortunately at times descended into a form of depravity which left a very bitter legacy. Today, we're going to talk about the character of the violence that marked the Civil War. And joining me to read the runes is Dr Gemma Clark, who's a senior lecturer in British and Irish history at the University of Exeter. Gemma has written and contributed to a number of books about this period since her first book, Everyday Violence in the Irish Civil War, which was published by Cambridge University Press. Gemma, you're very welcome. Thank you. Gemma, I suppose, first of all, just in terms of the character of the violence, there was obviously some terrible violence in the War of Independence also. But how did the nature of the violence differ during the Civil War? We see a continuation to a degree of some of the same tactics on both sides that we saw in the War of Independence. So on the anti-treaty Republican side, a continuation of the guerrilla tactics, sabotage, targeting infrastructure to try and undermine the free state in the same way that the IRA had done against the British in the War of Independence. And we do also see some degree of conventional military interaction. So as the two armies, those who supported the treaty and the establishment of a, of a new state within the Commonwealth and those who opposed the treaty and the maintenance of the, of the uh, link with Britain through the Oath of Allegiance resisted against that um, as they saw it continuing link with Britain and the Crown, vied for control of, of towns and barracks, especially in, in what was known as the Munster Republic, especially in some of the counties in, in the southwest. On the other hand, we also see a lot more intensity of local, social, cultural, even religious conflicts on the ground. So a lot more uh, of this neighbour against neighbour violence, violence within communities and attacks that can be read in terms of the debate over the treaty, but also might be seen as 
uh, a further war of decolonization. So a getting rid of the influence of Englishness and also opening up questions around land access. And I think we see a lot more of that kind of land violence and inter and even intra-communal violence in the civil war period, especially after September 1922, when the military conflict was pretty much finished. Yeah, that's an interesting element to it. The military contest, as it was, began with the shelling of the forecourts, of course, in late June. But as you say, by the end of August, September, into September, there was never any doubt who was going to win, so to speak. But the actual violence got worse and it, it remained so for, I don't know, at least six months, I would have thought. Yeah, so the Free State had the resources, it had the backing of the British state on its side, so it was never going to lose militarily. But the Republican anti-treaty faction continued to use many of the tactics that had been used before in essentially a war of sabotage, a war of guerrilla violence, of trying to undermine the state. They weren't necessarily trying to take over. They didn't have that power. Um, this is, a, this is a, a contest for authority and legitimacy, and arguably the free state had that because of the support for the treaty, the general election in June 1922 endorsing the treaty, but at a local level, a way to sabotage that settlement um, is through these various guerrilla tactics. And what's interesting is that while guerrilla violence continues and while there's a relative absence of, of law and order, you know, and God of Shikorna is just starting off, there's a bit of a power vacuum, if you like, there's lack of training and expertise, British demobilisation. When you have that confusion, if you like, and a transfer of authority, some of the themes and some of the conflicts that come out from a local level speak to wider concerns of this war and of this independence struggle. So things like land, religion, loyalty, and things get called into question in a much more confusing and, and bitter and nasty way, if you like, because the line between enemy and friend isn't so clear. It's not that you have the auxiliaries, the black and tans, the RIC in the British uniform against IRA fighters who have largely had the support of a lot of the local communities, in, especially in rural areas where they're operating through flying columns. You now have a situation of two armed groups, uh, both committing some very, um, some awful acts of violence, some very, using more problematic tactics compared to conventional militarism. And then you also have people fighting and reckoning for land access and other issues that wouldn't necessarily be in either army. So they are, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a local conflict, you know, there might be landless men or, or people, men and women with other agendas that don't fall neatly into this category of pro or anti-treaty. Right, and just geographically then, Gemma, um, as we say, like Dublin, and I think that ended pretty quickly, but geographically, a lot of this, would I be correct, after the summer of 22, you're talking about Munster, the South, and perhaps Connacht in the West. Would that be true? Yes, so I know most about Munster because that's the area that I've studied, but I think you would see the war spreading into counties that many of which had also been active in the War of Independence. But yes, this does become a, a, a war for control of, of local communities and a lot of the actions we see in terms of um, destruction of infrastructure 
We might think of County Limerick, which is a hub. It has a, a very strong railway network and, and sort of semi-industrialised county, if you like. And the, the anti-treaty strategy there was to disrupt daily life, halt commerce, make, make, make it so people couldn't sell their goods, couldn't get to where they needed to be. And this, you know, by smashing up roads, smashing up rail, burning railway carriages. So it's not purely about rural the rural space it's also it's also towns as well but I think looking at looking at it overall we'd see you know a lot of action around that whole spread of the country in the southwest so the the golden veil and we see a lot of violence against farmers you know hay burning um outhouse burning so there's a lot of local conflicts rural conflicts agrarian conflicts even labor conflicts you know, Waterford violence going on within Waterford's industries as well yeah. and, and with between um, its, its unions and workers and labourers. And you can imagine in that scenario, it's one thing during the War of Independence when the IRA were sabotaging infrastructure and as they saw it effectively taking on the Crown forces. But on one hand now you have those who are pro-treaty and they're trying to build a new Ireland and these guys want to continue where they left off. This is the way presumably the pro-treaty would have seen it. And you can see how emotions would get even more heightened than was the case in the War of Independence in that respect. The other thing I'm just wondering, as you said, you, you covered Munster. Why was it so intense in Munster? That's a great question. Why was it uh, Yeah, I, I'm um, often. <laughs> so, you, can, you can speculate in the character of people yeah, in Munster. I mean, but um, I think always geography is is very important in in any topic but especially in Ireland there are these you know county borders demarcate different traditions different yes. cultures almost so within certain counties there might be a tradition for republicanism you know strong voting patterns for Sinn Féin in 1918 might then feed into a more or might then also be seen later in, in a more divisive war of independence and, and civil war, you also have big personalities coming from certain counties in the southwest that might then influence the local history. There's certain tactics, certain um, modes of violence, certain ways of fighting that might be particular to a certain area. So we do see the Republicans and perhaps others drawing on tactics from the land war, things like cattle maiming and sending threatening notes. I mean, it's, it's um, I think it's also, you know, economics and demographics. So if we think about this partly as a war of decolonization and removing English influence, that it might then be worth looking at somewhere like Munster, where outside of, say, Cork City, which does have a Protestant working class population, the minority of of Protestants, and it's not to say that pro to be Protestant is necessary to be pro-British. It's a lot more complex than that. But we are looking at an area in Munster where we have the minority very spread out and perhaps very feeling very isolated. There might be more of a coalescence of that interest, the Protestant minority loyalist interest in the towns. But in the villages, in country areas, there might be more isolation and feel being distant from this campaign that's going on. So it, it, could, it, could be, it could be that. It could be a kind of combination of the, the type of people who live there and where they live and how they're spread out, as well as the particular ways those counties make their 
make their living, if you like, in more rural counties, you know, the dairy industry being really prominent across across Munster. Munster so then, yeah. And you, you, you mentioned um, in terms of the makeup of the population and, and the Protestant minority, and, you know, there, there was a certain amount of attacks on Protestants during the War of Independence, as we know. Um, did that continue to much extent during the Civil War? Yes, certainly there was continued targeting of the minority in the Civil War. It's difficult to pinpoint the exact moment when many Protestants left Ireland because of the distance between the two censors. The census collection was disrupted by the War of Independence, so we have figures from 1911 and 1926. During that period, a lot of voluntary and economic migration, demobilisation of British forces, withdrawal of civil servants, people whose businesses just went out of went out of practice because they don't have the soldiers and the civil servants in their town anymore that they're serving. So there is a range of uh, somewhere around between two and 16,000 Protestants who's leaving during that whole period can't be attributed to voluntary reasons. And I think that violence and intimidation played a role in some of those people living, moving out of their communities, perhaps moving to England, perhaps moving further afield. It's a really contentious topic and it's a difficult one. It's very difficult to ascribe a single motivation to any act of violence. But if we look for patterns, we can see that, for example, big houses were much more likely to be targeted than smaller houses. So the houses of the Anglo-Irish, largely Protestant elite. Um, We can see that loyalty to Britain um, was a common denominator in many of the attacks. Yeah, and, and just in terms of numbers that were there, uh, um, one set of figures I saw, 199 of these so-called big houses were attacked or destroyed during the Civil War, compared to 76 in the War of Independence. That would suggest a, a kind of a, an intensification of, um, of attacks. And the one other aspect to that, and I don't know if you've come across this in your research, is it very clear-cut in terms of those kind of attacks, that it was always the anti-treaty forces who were doing it, or did some of it, was some of it what you might call afters left over, that it could have been some of the pro-treaty forces even? The question of the escalation of the big house burnings is fascinating. You know, why are so many more of these icons of British rule, of plantation, English colonialism, why are more of those burned in the Civil War once the British administrations left? Uh, I see it as this this escalation in terms of the need for an ongoing decolonisation and ongoing removal of the vestiges, the symbols of British rule. But the thing is, these attacks are often linked in with very other many motivations and agendas. So, yes, largely these were being burned by anti-treaty IRA because they were on the back foot and these are precious resources and barracks And a pattern we see is that they occupy these houses and they burn them as the national troops approached. But it could well be the case that there might have been the opposite happened and there may well have been burning on the Free State side. What's interesting with the Free State is we don't see them perhaps have a recourse to collective punishment and punishment of civilians to quite the degree that Britain did. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I mean, the British forces, it was, it was, it was common for them. A couple of spectacular cases we know, Balbriggan. Cork to burn cities, to burn streets, to burn out civilians. We don't see the free state use as many of those old British tactics. We do see them act in a draconian way. We see executions increase, um, internment and other abuses. But this burning, this campaign of fire, uh, as it was dubbed at the time, is largely a Republican strategy, I think, to control the military situation, to remove potential strongholds of loyalism. You know, at the time we had Lloyd George saying in the treaty negotiations that he would reinstigate war uh, if, if, they, if they didn't sign. So the, the presence of Britain, I think, was, was there and there would have been, you know, worries and um, those with British interests could perhaps come back um, and, and launch some sort of counter-revolution, which we did, we did see in, in, in some senses in the character of the of the new free state, but it's also about, you know, economics and, and, and land access. And the fact is a lot of these big houses, they weren't occupied at the time. They were occupied by perhaps servants, you know, women, often right. female servants. Symbolic more than really. So uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that there's, there's symbolism here. And as much as there is, uh, because land purchase legislation brought in by the British and extended by the free state was allowing tenants to become owners of their land and parceling up a lot of these larger states. And this process had begun back in the 19th century. And, you know, by 1903, under the Wyndham Act, two thirds of tenants were proprietors. So they had their own place. But it was, this still leaves plenty of people who are poor, plenty of people who are landless, plenty of uneconomic holdings. And it's not just the case with big houses, it's also a lot of burning of crops, outhouses, these estates which are more middle-sized, you know, Catholic mm. graziers and people who have pasture and are engaged in the, the dairy industry. And we think we can look at this, the burning of, of crops and outhouses as, as a way to intimidate and to get these people off their land. You know, it's not just these old landlords for whom, you know, this is a, this is a, a loss, and many of the communities felt the same. There's lots of writing about this period and they say they lament the beautiful houses that were destroyed, the loss of the old treasures. But actually, you know, um, this was... For, for, there were plenty of normal people for whom violence was... changed their life, you know, they yeah. stopped their livelihood and they had to then relocate either within Ireland or... Or immigrate, or, further, yeah, or yeah. further afield. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. And just back to the, the nature of it again, and quite obviously one of the worst features of it and, and one that left a bitter legacy was the executions. Mm. 
they were introduced in response to a heightening of the IRA violence and I think the murder of, I think it was Sean Hales, who's a uh, TD at the time. Did the executions change the character of it? Beyond, you know, merely heightening, obviously, hatreds and that, but of the violence that was perpetrated, did it fulfil its aim, which was, once we execute them, that'll scare the daylights out of them and, and it'll quieten things down? I would say, if anything, it, it would increase a sense that the Free State was acting just like the British had done before. Right. And I would say that it only further encouraged this cycle of attack and reprisal which had characterised the whole period. So you, you see that, for example, when you look at um, so Dan Breen, famous IRA fighter, described the burning of a big house, Milefield in County Tipperary, he talked about it being a reprisal for executions. This was something we can do in response to, to the state coming to get us. You know, we, we as Republicans, as anti-treaty, as the anti-treaty faction, we don't have the, the apparatus of the state. We don't have prisons and we can't intern and torture and execute, but we can assassinate and we can target the people who are powerful. So that's why we see uh, members of the Shannad, Free State Senators, houses being burned. It was repression that didn't work. I, I would say, I mean, most, most, mostly repression doesn't work. Yeah. And that's a lesson from, from British rule in Ireland for hundreds of years. If anything, um, it increases resentments and continues the... I mean, what, one thing that the British had always tried previously was, you know, conciliation alongside coercion. So give political... Um, make political concessions... But if you like the way that the Free State painted the anti-treaty side, it was not like their old comrades and people who they were in political dialogue with, even though eventually the anti-treaty side would come back into the mainstream system through Fianna Fáil. These are, you know, terrorists and they're gangsters and they're people who are trying to, just, you know, uh, undermine this whole project, which is getting rid of Britain, coming out and being a, a new liberal democracy and being a stable country. So I don't think that, I mean, not to, absolutely not to excuse any of those tactics, but I suppose they were performing their power in the only way that they could at that time. You know, they had quite a small, uh, it's a new country, economically fragile. So you go to these uh, familiar tactics of, of uh, state power. Yeah, the other thing being, though, it, it was also, apart from anything else, you said it was a new state, it was also illegal. It was extrajudicial in terms yes, of the way, yeah. the, way, the way they did it. The other element to it then, and this was very much so in Munster, and particularly in Kerry, was these atrocities, particularly the likes of Bally Seedy. Um, the notion of tying people together around a bomb, uh, it, it's just... I think there was three, about three incidents of that nature um, in Kerry, there was Bally Seed. I think there was one in Bahox outside Carsevine. I think they did one, sorry, there was two anyway, as far as I know. But uh, again, that plumbed the real depth, didn't it? Those sorts of atrocities reflect the intensity and brutality that you do often get in civil war. And there's countless examples of that all over the globe, even today, unfortunately. I guess what is interesting in the Irish case is almost the restraints on violence and that we don't see 
many of those horrific acts of interpersonal violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we forget that. In particular, there was places, even at the time, like Finland, that yeah. uh, it, it, it was an awful lot worse. And then, what, less than 20 years later in, in, in Spain, that uh, I suppose maybe it's just because a smaller, more intimate society, maybe it's because they, they're, they're larger in the public consciousness or whatever, those acts that occurred at the time. Yeah, and the, just the other thing that uh, would strike me there as well, Gemma, there was a breakdown of law and order, I think it's fair to say, in large parts of the country. But it was 1,500 dead in, in the Civil War, which was a lot. But, and I, I think I'm quoting you here in a recent piece you wrote where you said, often it was the non-lethal aggressions by and against civilians that left the most painful scars on Irish society. It was that... Uh, trauma, I suppose, that came out of the whole thing. Yes, I think that it's, you know, if you, um, I suppose to put it very bluntly, if you're, if you're dead, you don't mind anymore. But, um, but like, if uh, a lot of this non-lethal aggression has the result of making people feel unwelcome in their community, and it might also cause economic deprivation, their businesses aren't patronised anymore. They might have to, to leave the area where they live. And I think what is difficult is knowing that the people who did this to you are people who you've lived alongside for perhaps a long time. So there's so many small actions and abuses that don't sound very significant in some ways compared to some of the brutal interpersonal violence we see in conflicts, in civil other civil conflicts at the time. But that doesn't mean that they don't individually have such a long-lasting legacy on, on families. You know, we might think of the trauma that remains after sexual assault, um, which featured in the War of Independence and in, and in the Civil War, you know, the punishment, if you like, of female insurgents, people who were on often on the Republican side by, by the National Army, you know, acts of humiliation, hair chopping, but also social ostracism of people who were associated with the British, so widows of ex-RIC personnel, people who'd had sons serve in the First World War. These things go on for many years after the war finishes. You know, when the military conflict ends, when the Republicans dump their arms, May 1923, it's not that all these things get forgotten. They still get remembered and talked about within families and people have to process what happened and process the fact that it was done to them by people within their own community. And then you have the years after of recovery, you know, seeking compensation. That's a huge process. It takes up a lot of time and resources for the new state. People looking for compensation. It might be something seemingly simple. Their lands got damaged, walls got and roads got blown up as part of the war on infrastructure, or it might be something more targeted, like burning houses, and it's how to recover from that and get your financial stability back, and also how to sort of start to feel more accepted in the, in the community. And I think this is when we see maybe those who are in the political and religious minority, like Protestants, who make up such a small and dwindling population, especially in some of the southern counties, Having to keep their heads down, if you like, and, 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 and live peacefully 
but perhaps not mention many of these stories that have that you know mentioning things that happened to them in the civil war so that's why history is important and also different approaches to history so looking at you know not just the government files but also perhaps people's memoirs and diaries and letters and looking at literature and culture and art and thinking how did people process this after you know for generations after it, it and, ended and that's a very important point that to a large extent, it went unspoken down through generations. And, and a lot of those stories, I suppose it's only in recent decades, that in one form or another are coming out. But it was, I suppose it was nearly as if the only way they could process it was just say nothing. Shifra Aiken has written a book recently called Spiritual Wounds, challenging this idea that there was a, a silence around the war, the civil war, because, as you say, a lot of these stories got passed on within families and communities, and some of them were captured in in more unusual formats like fiction or poetry or personal stories but in terms of official recognition um, or public reckoning or commemoration we don't have an official end date we don't have a, a treaty we don't have a process of truth and reconciliation of talking about what happened who killed who even how many people were killed it's we have a great project, um, we have a great kind of compendium of, of, of political violence deaths by Yunin Halpin, but we don't have the same facts and figures for the civil war. So there's still a lot that is unknown and that needs to be researched. And it's difficult. Um, Antisha talked about it in his opening address about how for a long time... That's the UCC conference on the civil war, yeah. Yeah, uh, that um, for a long time... It wasn't that it wasn't mentioned, but because the civil war informed current politics and the political divide right up until this current coalition, it was almost like saying civil war, you knew what was meant, you knew they had these two positions and the two parties developed out of the pro and anti-treaty perspective. But actually that remained in the Antishok said, it sort of it covered, it sort of inhibited discussion because it was like a byword for political division and encapsulated a, a quite a quite a specific debate within republicanism and within Irish nationalism when really within that label of civil war lots of things happened at a local level that weren't then talked about in terms of maybe gender-based violence or sectarianism um, or land violence so absolutely there's um, it's always it's difficult to process the thing about civil war is um, and Bill Kassan has written, has spoke about this. Bill Kassan spoke, did a keynote on this at the the big UCC uh, national conference on the civil war. After a civil war, you you face the prospect of living together again. It's not mm. a war on a faraway battlefield. So there is perhaps some mileage in keeping some things silent in order to move on for political expediency. And we see that in the current situation in in Northern Ireland. Similarly, there hasn't been truth and reconciliation, many formal processes there, because in order to keep the state functioning, people who are involved in paramilitarism become politicians and things don't get talked about because otherwise there'd be, uh, there'd be a block to further peace. But we have to find a balance, I think, of, of admitting certain things and, and finding as much truth as we can and paying testament to the victims and, and thinking about what, what was it like for them trying to tell their stories um, you know, it's not for us as historians to judge if it was right or wrong or if it was sectarian or if it was 
socialist or if it was what, what motivated it. We can look for patterns, but we also need to listen to the voices of people at the time and why did they think they suffered? Did they think they suffered because they were seen as British or because they were Protestant or because they supported the treaty? So lots of, lots of work still to do, but that's why it's, uh, it's great to have uh, podcasts and conversations, especially, you know, Centenary provides a good opportunity to, to think about these big questions. It absolutely does. Jimmy Clark, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you so much. That's it, folks. Um, this, this edition in our Civil War series of podcasts. Uh, I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon, and thank you for listening. We talk again very soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.